Thank you for joining us for the Lessons from First Naz podcast. Preach here. Ah, it's been a month. Um, some of you thought, what? Yeah, uh, it's been a month. And um, uh, all for good reasons, right? I mean, no, not for good reasons. There were good reasons. There were good reasons, I promise. Kelsey Kennedy preached here. First sermon before our church family. Yeah, woohoo. Kelsey watches on Sunday, so good, good. Um, let's see. Oh, yeah, then we heard from, from Steve. Steve talked to us about serving and about doing it in a way that is a, uh, not an exception to our lives, but a committed way of life. Not something we add to our Christianity, but the very expression of the heart of Christ toward the world is rolling up your sleeves and doing something that helps. And uh, we also got to hear from Jay Ackerman last week, who, who talked to us about this lavish, ridiculously generous God who, who does things that human beings would never do because of his great love for us. I've had a wonderful time the last month having my soul fed by, by those people, and yet uh, I've, uh, I've been reminded that preaching is air to me. I have to do this, and so oh, it's good to take a big, deep breath and uh, share God's Word with you today. You uh, probably have noticed that the Christmas season is behind us and has, uh, for the most part, disappeared from the rearview mirror I hope you've, um, you know, put the Christmas decorations away by now. My kids tell me that one time in the past, I left our Christmas lights on the house for two years. I claim that the kids had a bad dream because I don't put lights up on the house, but apparently did one time in the past and was delinquent and taking them down. Um, Maybe you've done that by now, put the Christmas stuff away, and and hopefully your schedule is returned to the normal kind of crazy, you know what I mean? That that rhythm that, that regular life has for us outside of the holidays. Well, at my house in the weeks leading up to Christmas, I noticed a very different rhythm taking place. It seemed like the UPS man was showing up pretty doggone often at our place. And I know it's a product of the fact that that most of us, many of us, are doing more and more of our shopping online, and so that means that a fair number of packages show up at our doorsteps in the build-up to Christmas. At our house, the UPS man shows up pretty promptly, right around 5 o'clock in the evening, and uh, that, that trained my kids. My kids ended up ha- uh, manifesting this rather Pavlovian kind of uh, reaction to the doorbell ringing at 5 o'clock in the evening. No matter what else was happening, dinner or the preparations for it, homework, that kind of stuff, when the doorbell rang, they would sprint to the door to get their hands on the package, knowing full well that they were not going to be allowed to open it, see what's in there, unless, you know, the grand exception of one of them buying a gift for, for their siblings or for but for Laura and me, all the same, the kids loved the idea of just, just getting their hands on gifts. They wanted, they wanted to feel the weight and, and see the size and shape of the box. That was the build-up to Christmas. Uh, because we didn't uh, grow up out west and our, our folks have, have stayed back in, in that part of the country, 
Uh, it means that for years now, the kids have not received Christmas gifts from their grandmas and grandpas, but instead they get money. And money means that instead of, you know, grandmas buying them sweaters they don't like, that the kids get to buy the stuff that they really want. And since our kids do a fair amount of their shopping online too, it meant that the UPS man was coming back after Christmas and probably for about the next three weeks as I recall it. And if I had thought that the race for the door was a dead sprint before Christmas, let's just say that once my kids knew what was coming and knew it was for them, um, my kids had a gear that I didn't realize they had before Christmas. See, they had, uh, they'd waited for Christmas, and then they'd, they'd shopped for a while and waited to order things, and then they had waited some more for the arrival of the things that they had ordered. The anticipation had been almost more than they could bear, so when the doorbell rang at 5 p.m. for the first three weeks after Christmas, pandemonium broke out at Team Purcell headquarters. Sometimes the kids were so eager to get their gifts that they would look out the front door just in case the UPS man was on his way, and they wanted to be gracious and open the door for him so he didn't have to ring the doorbell. Yeah, looking out there just in case. Then when we had the weather-related shipping delays, it made things even worse. So it was pretty common for the, the kids, when, when he finally did show up, to say under their breath, it's about time. Anything like that unfold at your house over the, the recent months? If not, I think we can all still identify something that we've been eagerly hoping for and that has kept us waiting and waiting and waiting for far longer than we wanted it to. For some of us, maybe uh, an acceptance letter from a college and maybe for others, test results, medical test results. For some of us, over the next couple of months, we'll be waiting for the arrival of a tax return. We wait, and we hope, and then we wait some more, and then when those things finally arrive, our our hearts and sometimes our mouths exclaim, well, it's about time. Today I want to begin a a series of sermons that are going to lead us up through Easter. Easter comes early this year. It's in March. Over these weeks, we're going to take a look at the life and teachings of Jesus as told in the Bible's New Testament book called The Gospel According to Luke. Luke was a medical doctor with an eye for details, and he said that he had a purpose in writing his account of Jesus' life story. We already had another life story of Jesus, a couple of versions of it, Matthew and and Mark, in opposite orders, really, Mark written first. But Luke said that he had a purpose in writing his version of the story. He was writing to a friend of his named Theophilus. And he said, Theophilus, I'm trying to write an orderly account of what Jesus did and said so that you can be certain of the things you already believe. You get that? He's writing to Theophilus, a guy who's already come to faith in Christ. But he says, I understand how faith goes. Sometimes it shakes and quakes a little bit. And I'm going to write a detailed account, an ordered account of Jesus' life, so that those things that you already believe about him, you can be certain of. And so as we study this book together, understand that Luke's doing us a favor. He's saying, I know faith is hard, and I'm going to help you get some handles on it that will make it a bit more certain. 
These messages, however, will not be only for the people who already believe in Jesus. I know that as I teach from week to week that there are people with us who aren't yet followers of Jesus. They haven't yet figured out whether they want to be. I know that there's people here who uh, are still trying to figure out what it is that they believe in this life. So each week, we're going to take a look at a passage from Luke, and and whatever your your position relative to faith in Jesus, I hope that you can either find a faith or find your faith strengthened, okay? So wherever you are in that whole faith journey thing, um, how about this? What if we made a decision today that between now and Easter, we're going to show up every week? We're going to show up every week between now and Easter in the hopes that along the way, I'll either find enough reasons that come Easter, I'll decide to believe. Or if we already trust him, we'll find our faith strengthened and confirmed between now and Easter Sunday. I'm not going to start at the beginning of Luke's book because it opens with the Christmas story, and we've done that recently. Uh, Instead, I want to tell you a story from Jesus' early life that begins when he was just eight days old. If you'd like to read it later, it's found in Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, beginning with verse 21. But uh, let me give you a little bit of background on the story first. Luke introduced his book by saying that that he was going to write an orderly account of Jesus' life in the hope that his readers could know for certain the things that they'd already decided to believe. And that brings to, to mind the question, well, what are the things that they'd already decided to believe? First, Luke and his friends had believed that Jesus had been sent by God to be a national hero of sorts. Um, but the time that, uh, that Jesus reached adulthood and, and um, embarked on his ministry in this world, uh, there was a political situation that had come to pass in Israel and had been the, the, the new order of things for almost a century, about 65-ish years before Christ, and now 30 years into his life, we get, we get close to a century of Roman occupation. The Roman army had rolled in, it had defeated Jerusalem, and now the people had lived with hostile troops underfoot, watching their every move, and it will affect a way that people live and will shape their culture over the course of a century. Luke and his friend remembered that in Israel's past, this had happened a lot. Over the course of the, of the centuries of Israel's existence as a people, they had often been bullied and punished and interrupted and invaded by foreign armies, by neighboring nations. So many times throughout their history that it had kind of become a theme for them. But Israel's is- history had also been punctuated by the speeches given by a number of nationally known prophets. And each one of those prophets said a handful of things. Their message basically came down to to two points. Number one, it's time for the people of God to turn back to God. It's time for the people who say they're the people of God to actually become the people of God again, become faithful to him, live in obedience to him. That was the primary message of the prophets. The secondary message was this, yeah, good luck. (laughs) People don't do that very well. And so he's going, God is going to send someone who is going to help both with your hearts, and with the national scene. 
Not only would that rescuer be, be specially appointed by God, but he would also be specially equipped by God for the task. And, and when they got the notion that God was sending somebody who had special abilities to deliver their nation, they gave him a title. And the title in their native tongue, Hebrew, was Messiah. But the whole Mediterranean world of that day also spoke one unified trade language, and it was Greek. And so the, the Greek translation of that idea and that word Messiah was Christ. So to put it simply, Luke and his reader had decided to believe that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the, the grand fixer that God had appointed and equipped to come into this world. But they didn't believe him to be the Messiah in a straightforward kind of way. While their countrymen were looking for a militaristic and political leader who would oust the Roman legion, Luke and his friends had really come to understand that the real problem in Israel was not politics, but unfaithfulness to God. Just a quick question for you. Do I need to like, clear my throat here and say, hint, hint, wink, wink, nod, nod, because I think America needs to get the same point? The problem is not Politics is the heart of our people. Not them out there. Them and us. The call throughout scripture from the prophets time and again is for the people of God to become truly the people of God. To lead the way for their nation. Luke didn't believe that Jesus was come to fix their politics. He believed that he had come to fix the relationship problem between people and God. Secondly, Luke and his friend that he was writing to believed that the relationship problem with God couldn't be fixed by a mere human being. So they believed that God had sent a rather unique being onto the scene, a God-man. Now, I understand that that sounds pretty far-fetched to most people, and I get it. I don't believe there are God-men. I don't. They don't exist I don't believe in God-men, but I believe in one God-man, just one, who was sent into the world by God himself. And that's what Luke and his friend Theophilus believed too. They believed that if anyone was going to be effective in solving the relationship problem between Israel and God or between any person and God, he would have to have a share in both sides of the relationship. He would need to be both God and man. And they believed that that's exactly descriptive of Jesus. It's who he was. And that's why Luke went into such great details in describing the circumstances, mystery, miracle, surrounding the conception and birth of Jesus, because those details, in those details, he was reinforcing this idea that Jesus was indeed the grand fixer that the prophets had foretold, who was both God and man. And if you read the rest of Luke's gospel, you got to read it with this idea in mind that Luke is continuing to give us evidence that Jesus is the God-man who came as the grand fixer. And as you read the stories that prove it, you can find your faith strengthened and confirmed. Isn't it interesting how whenever we are considering people for national leadership offices such as the presidency, we always want to know their life's story and how that either qualifies them or disqualifies them for office. You want to make left-wingers and right-wingers alike squirm in their seats? I kind of take a perverse joy in that. 
just bring up the subject of place of birth. Obama, Cruz, game on, y'all. Fight from both sides of the aisle, right? That's what we do politically. Luke tells the part of the Jesus story that I'll share with you today, the part about his, the part immediately following his birth and where he was raised, in an effort to sort of prove that Jesus was indeed from the right place at the right time, uniquely positioned as the grand fixer that the prophets foretold and that God had promised to his people. So here's the scene. Assume that you know absolutely nothing about the mystery and the miracles that surrounded the birth of John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin and his official prophetic announcer. Assume that you know absolutely nothing about the angel appearing to Jesus' mother on the night of his conception. Assume that you know nothing about the multiple appearances and, uh, and conversations between an angel and Joseph regarding Joseph's role in bringing this whole thing about and guiding the holy family through those early years. And make sure that you forget the story of the Magi, some astrologers who lived far distant but had been watching the skies literally for centuries looking for a light that would lead them to the Messiah. I don't even know how you determine such a thing. But just assume that you know nothing about any of these mysteries and miracles. And then one day you find yourself in Israel's temple. Seeing all of the, the typical, ordinary, religious temple stuff. There's priests in there in their goofy clothes doing the, the priestly things that priests do, like making music and taking care of the place and performing religious rituals of any number of kinds. You can see priests there meeting with people and praying with them. And almost all of the other people who are coming into the temple are coming in with something in their hands. They're coming with all kinds of offerings. It might be a tithe, one-tenth of their income as a financial contribution to the temple. It might be vegetables or animals that they brought as signs of their gratitude that their farms were doing well. Or sometimes you'd see people leading in lambs or bringing in doves. And these things were an admission of sin and a sacrifice that was offered in the hope that God would not punish them for being sinful as they were. In the middle of all of that, there were also each day a number of young couples who would show up, and they had newborn babies in tow. And these people that brought the little babies also always, always, always brought gifts. And if their baby was a boy, they presented him and the gift to the same priest, and the priest would then perform a strange religious ceremony called circumcision. The kids who are in the service, if you don't know what circumcision is, ask your parents. <laughs> parents, you're welcome. <laughs> Enjoy your lunch. The priest would do his part, and then uh, the baby would shriek and wail, and the parents would mop their tears, and then they would turn and leave, and the next young family would, would come forward, and they'd do the same thing all over again. Busy place, busy place, loud place, too. People... Animals, music, prayers, crying, screaming babies. Got that picture in your head? Kind of a kinetic chaos. 
And in the middle of all that, how, how would any one young couple stand out from the crowd? Everybody dressed similarly. Everybody acted similarly. Everybody went through the same ritual. And then they left, mostly unnoticed, as the attention turned to the next couple who's presenting the baby. But on the day that you're at the temple, an old guy starts causing a ruckus about one of these families that he singled out. His name's Simeon. And he was probably too old to be there presenting a baby for a dedication, so had to be there for some other reason. We kind of get the, the idea as we read the story that he was an old man, and, and maybe old enough that people wondered whether, you know, there's a dementia problem. He was deeply religious, they, they knew that. He was spiritual, and he believed what the ancient prophets had said about God sending a grand fixer. And so, because he believed it, he'd prayed all of his life, well, go ahead, God, it's about time. Send him. Prayed his whole life that he'd get to see the Messiah with his own eyes. And in fact, he he claimed that one day while he was praying, God spoke to him and said, I will make that dream a reality. You are going to see the coming of the Messiah. And so, for some reason, on that day late in his life, he was at the temple. And as he watched that stream of young families, one of them stood out. It's because God had whispered in his ear, that's him. Check out that baby boy. He's the one you've been waiting on. So, can you see it? Simeon approaches the couple and He compliments their beautiful baby boy and asks, would it be too much for me to ask if I could hold him? And so they humored the old fella and handed the baby to him, which is a common enough kind of thing. But that's when things kind of went wrong and a little bit freaky, quite honestly. You know those people who mean well, but who always manage to say the wrong thing? Yeah, that was Simeon. (laughs) Just so you know, that's the kind of guy he was. All of a sudden, Simeon starts praying out loud, God, it's about time. He he says that, in fact, God can kill him now. He doesn't need to live a day longer because he's seen the grand Messiah, the the grand fixer, the Christ. Even with all the kill me now stuff, though, can't you imagine Mary's heart probably swells just a, a little bit? She hadn't told the old guy anything, but somehow he'd heard from God and was announcing to the crowd that day that her boy was special. It was, you know, everything a young mom could want, except for all of the weird about, God, you can kill me now. Now, The problem with Simeon, really, was that he just didn't know when to stop talking. When he ran out of nice things to say about Jesus, he then got this faraway look in his eye, like, Like, maybe it wasn't Simeon that was doing the talking, you know what I mean? He looked at Mary in the eye and he said, this boy is going to build some people up. And he's sure going to tear a lot of people down, too. He's been sent from God, which mostly seems like a good thing. But even some people who understand that are going to stand against him, resist him all the way. Mark my words. He'll be able to see what is in other people's hearts And by the way, young lady, you're going to see something in your heart too. A sword. Thanks a lot, creepy old guy. (laughs) This was supposed to be a big day in our family's life. The dedication of our son. And and you present him with the least likely to succeed award. And mama with something that felt a little bit like a threat. Thanks for that. And just as the young couple was saying, 
get the kid back and, and reached for him. Someone over their shoulder starts having a religious experience and a very loud one. And she's attracting attention to herself and doing it on purpose. What does she say? She says, it's about time. I've been waiting forever, God. Now, a lot of people in that day uh, had given up on the idea that the Grand Fixer was really going to come. But not Anna. That was her name, the one making the noise. She, she hadn't given up. And she wasn't the only one. She saw the boy Jesus and started praising God and at the same time yelling to everyone around her, if you've been waiting like I have, and it's been about 85 years, you're going to want to take note of this little kid right here. He's the Messiah. The difference between the old guy Simeon and, and the old woman Anna was that everybody knew that she was a prophet. She lived in the temple 24-7 for crying out loud. That's, that's going to church a lot if you, if you stay when they lock up. You know what I mean? Closed for the night? It's okay, I'll just lay over here. Yeah. They'd heard her before, and everybody had heard her before. Everybody who'd ever been to the temple had heard Anna saying and doing something, and they realized that these messages were coming to them from God through this old woman. And now, just as the old guy was ending his maybe crazy but maybe prophetic tirade, Anna chimes in with this second unrehearsed announcement that this kid is going to be the grand fixer, the Messiah, the Christ, and that it was just about Time, God, thank you very much. Would you like to be certain of the things that Christians believe? Let me ask you a question. What would it take? You'd like proof? What would it take? What would it take for you to be certain of the things that the Christians believe? How about if a prophet showed up at your house and told you? Would that help at all? How about if a second one came? Doorbell rang and it wasn't the UPS man. Luke was a sharp man, a medical doctor, not gullible. And this story helped to convince him that Jesus was exactly who he later claimed to be. Maybe it'll help you too. But on a slightly different note, have you ever had one of those it's about time moments with God? Something you've prayed about and waited on for a long, long time to the point that you've given up or just about, and then God came through? Because I have. And as I look back on them, I'm truly thankful for those times that God has come through for me just in the nick of time. So those aren't the times that bother us, are they? It's when we're in the middle of a situation and God hasn't come through for us yet. And our knees begin to buckle and our faith gets a little worn and threadbare. And we begin to doubt God's goodness. Maybe giving in to the thinking that we're being punished for our sins. If you're in the middle of one of those situations today, I won't insult you with an empty, oh, it'll all work out. Everything's going to be just fine. You may have three or 30 more miles of bad road in front of you. But I can confidently say to you on the basis of my own recent experience with very hard things, 
that God rewards the tenacity of spirit that doesn't give up hope while it waits for the it's about time moment. You know what Simeon and Anna had been doing earlier that morning? They'd been asking, when, Lord? How long is this going to take? They'd been telling him, we need you to show up, God. We need you to come through for us. We don't know how much longer we can hold on. And if that's where you are today, can I make a few suggestions that might help you until the time when you get your it's about time moment? The first is this. Why don't you just admit it to God? Posturing before him is of no help whatsoever. It's, it really makes for the kind of empty religion that God and people despise. So why not just admit it to God? He knows your heart, so don't fake it with him. If you're tired of holding on, tell him. If you think you might not make it, put it that plainly to him. I tell God all the time, you need to remember that you made me out of dust. I don't know how much more I can stand. I'm about to reach the end of me. I have my limits. But the scriptures tell me you have none. So I've come all the way towards you that I can. Can you please close the gap and come help me with this? Second, why don't you just tell him exactly what you think you need? See, relationship with God is real, so it also needs to be healthy. And in healthy relationships, we don't hint around or play games or try to manipulate people into meeting our needs. We just say it. We state our needs plainly. We ask humbly but clearly. Go gut level with your confession to God and go gut level with your requests to him. Third, I would say, you should probably also half expect a different kind of Messiah than you were hoping for. Cliff, you're really not selling this very well, and I get it. A little truth in advertising this morning. If we really believe that God is perfectly wise, and if we have any realization whatsoever that we are not, then it logically follows that God and I are going to be of differing opinions fairly regularly. If he's wise and I'm not, we're not going to arrive at the same answer. And that means that we may be wrong about what we really need. Humility means that we recognize that in our most stressful and pain-filled times, we may not have the clearest, best perspective on our situation. So after we've asked him for what we think we need, we then open ourselves up to another answer, the one that'll work, allowing God to go about the business of being God instead of, you know, the guy who fetches our groceries and laundry for us. Allowing him to really be the grand fixer in ways that treat the real problem instead of the symptoms. Last suggestion. You know, after you've admitted to God where you are, you've told him what you think you need, and then, and then opened yourself up to him going about it a different way, just listen for the whispers. 
In John 16, 13, Jesus said that when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide us into all truth. On the scene in the temple that day were were two people who said weird things, unexpected things, and both of them spoke by the Holy Spirit. Mere weirdness was not the authenticating mark of the Holy Spirit, but many times he works and speaks in ways that you just wouldn't expect him to. After a few of these episodes in your life, you'll begin to recognize the unorthodox moves of the Spirit, and you'll realize that he's whispering the answer to you. Wisdom and maturity are found in buckling down during the hard times and walking out these steps that I've been teaching. And in getting through a few of them with God, you'll learn to recognize his presence with you always. And that's what will get you through the hard stuff while you wait for the breakthrough. While you wait for your it's about time moment. You waiting for an it's about time moment today? I'll bet a lot of us are. I am. I need to hear from God about two things in my life that I'm asking him about several times a day. And if you do two, then I would invite you to to, uh, take the next step toward that it's about time moment. Worship team's going to come. We're going to sing a song that confesses our need of him. You can stay where you are, you can sit, you can stand, but um, I'd like to introduce some of you to this wooden thing that we have across the front. It's an altar. It's, it's a special place of prayer. Special to us because um, many of us have soaked this thing over the years with our tears because we came in desperation. I think it's special to God, too, because of the same desperation People don't fake it on their knees. People don't fake it on their faces. And quite frankly, just stretch with me a little bit here. I don't think, I don't think when you take the odd posture that an altar requires, or you bend over and show your back end to everybody in church, it's just too embarrassing to go down here if you're going to fake it. So, if you're on the journey waiting for your next, oh, it's about time. I'm glad it happened right now. I'm glad you came through today, God. If you're, if you're looking for one of those, then uh, I would just encourage you to come and seek him at an altar. Tell him exactly what you need. Prepare yourself to receive a different kind of grand fixer. And then just get quiet and listen for the whispers. We're going to lead a song that's a prayer of this kind of confession. And you can sing it with us. You can sit, stand, or kneel. But let's go to God with our longing, with our need, with our want, and with our weight today.